Welcome, dear listeners, to another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. Today's case is a crime of desperate impulse. John Brokenshire, a young man on the wrong side of the law, is confronted by his transgressions and lashes out. His violent reaction would ignite the largest manhunt in the area's history and pit him against every police officer from Toronto to Oakville. From the case files of Heritage Mississauga, this is Mississauga Confidential. Episode 8, The Desperate Hours, Manhunt for a Cop Killer. Thursday, December 11, 1930, City of Toronto. Patrol Sergeant Rumble was on night detail at Keel Station when the report of a stolen Marquette sedan, license number M9560, came in over the telephone. He scribbled the details into a pad, tore off the note, and handed it to Constable Roy Halliburton, a plainclothesman. Halliburton went to fetch Roy McQuillan, a uniformed constable, to be his escort. The car had been stolen in London the day before, and was spotted in Scarborough that morning. Now the Marquette was cruising its way through No. 9 Division. The constables grabbed their hats and overcoats, and climbed into a police <clears throat> the constables grabbed their hats and overcoats and climbed into a police speed car they then drove out into the cold wet night to hunt for the hot marquette traveling west on st clair avenue they bobbed and weaved through the light evening traffic until they spotted their prey ahead of them it turned off st clair to head north on scarlet road along the twisting Humber River Valley. The police car followed. McQuillan reached for the small lever of the police siren and cranked it. The siren shrilly shouted for the Marquette to pull over. Instead, it roared its engine and shot away from them. Halliburton hit the accelerator and the patrol car leapt forward to give chase. The sleek, powerful pursuit vehicle had no trouble closing in behind the Marquette. The cops pulled alongside the Marquette and eventually passed it. Halliburton veered in front of the Marquette to box it in. The Marquette ducked the trap by swerving onto the shoulder, but it found its path blocked by a large tree. Both cars screeched to an abrupt halt at the side of the road. The police officers exited their car and walked back towards the stolen vehicle. Halliburton eased closer on the passenger's side, noting the silhouette of a man sitting alone in the back seat. McQuillan approached on the driver's side and knocked on the window. The driver cranked it down halfway. He was a young man in a beige overcoat and a blue pinstripe suit. What's the idea? he spat. Where did you get this car? asked McQuillan. This is my car, responded the driver. Have you got your permit? McQuillan shot back. Where's your permit? The driver nodded to the shadowy man in the back seat. He's got it. Halliburton opened the rear door on the passenger side, but the man in the back didn't move a muscle. 
This is a stolen car, Halliburton told the men. We'll have to take you down to the station, McQuillan added. They were his last words. Before he knew it, the driver had produced a loaded revolver and held it on him. You son of a bitch, stick him up, the driver snarled. Then he drilled two staccato shots into McQuillan, who crumpled onto the car's running board. The man in the back seat darted out of the car and took cover behind the nearby tree. Halliburton ducked behind the back of the vehicle and drew his service pistol. He peered up and fired two shots at the driver through the windshield of the car, splintering the windows. One of the bullets grazed the driver in the chest, under his left arm. Halliburton squeezed the trigger again, but was met with a limp clicking sound. The gun was jammed. As Halliburton ripped open his overcoat to access his second firearm, the gunman stepped out of the car, stood over the wounded McQuillan, and drove four more bullets into him. At the service station across the street, Edward McCulgan was making a quick stop to pick up some candles on his way home from work. Hearing the gunfire, he rushed out of the station just in time to see two men fleeing into a nearby gravel quarry. Constable Halliburton ran up to him, shoved the jammed revolver into his hand, and recruited him into a foot chase after the two suspects. They followed the suspects into the quarry, but found only gravel and darkness. Halliburton returned to the patrol car and radioed in. Scarlet Road was still stained scarlet with the blood of Constable McQuillan. Six point-blank bullets hadn't been enough to kill him, but the life was draining out of him fast. They helped load McQuillan into the car of another witness, Robert Smith, who floored it to St. Joseph's Hospital. McQuillan died en route. Throughout the city, police call boxes flashed their bright red signals. The nimble, dexterous fingers of switchboard operators furiously sounded the alarm. Every available on-duty cop was pulled off their beat, and every off-duty cop was roused from their homes to join in the pursuit of the two fugitives. All leaves were cancelled, effective immediately. An army of police began to muster at the crime scene on Scarlet Road. Toronto Chief of Police, Dennis Draper, arrived to take charge of the manhunt. Fire engines were brought in to cast their searchlights into the swampy ravine that ran alongside Scarlet Road. A dragnet was cast over the entire west end of Toronto. In the kitchen of 27 McGregor Avenue, a modest two-story red brick house in the neighborhood of Runnymede, Alice McQuillan was busy preparing a cake for her husband's 33rd birthday party the next day. It was going to be a surprise party and the preparations had to be undertaken in secret while her husband was on duty. She paused when she heard a knock at the door and went to answer it. A reporter had already been sniffing around the house, casually asking questions about her husband, but he'd gone away. Now on the porch stood a grave-faced Constable Halliburton, who she knew from Number 9 Division Station. She invited him into the neatly kept living room, the only clutter was from the children's toys that dotted the floor. Halliburton informed Mrs. McQuillan that her husband had been killed in the line of duty earlier that evening. He had been there and seen it happen. From the hallway came the sound of seven-year-old Roy McQuillan Jr. crying out from the upstairs landing. Just before midnight, 
A Toronto police dispatch sent out a description of the two suspects to all police departments in Ontario and to all newspapers and radio stations in the Toronto area. The gunman was described by Constable Halliburton as aged between 20 and 25, about 5 feet 8 inches in height, slim, wearing a fawn overcoat and no hat. The passenger in the back was described as aged about 30, 5 foot 7 or 8 inches in height, stout, wearing a dark overcoat and a gray fedora. Three hours later, just after 3 a.m., Two motorcycle officers eyed two men matching those descriptions attempting to jumpstart a car near Riverside Cemetery in the neighborhood of Humber Heights, a few kilometers north of the crime scene. The men spotted the coppers and ducked into the cemetery. The perp's location was radioed in, and a convoy of 50 police vehicles sped northward to the cemetery, their screaming sirens tearing through the quiet night. The commotion roused the citizenry from their beds, and a mob of hundreds joined the cops at the cemetery to witness the capture of the fugitives. They watched as the cemetery entrances were cordoned off, and a battalion of police officers assembled in skirmish line formation along one side of the cemetery's border. The order was given, and the thin blue line began moving forward as one, combing through every inch of the cemetery. As they marched, the narrow beams of their flashlights brushed away the shadows. One of the flashlight beams hit upon a small hill next to a fence at the edge of the cemetery. As it rested there, it seemed to coax a pair of hands up from behind the hill. Slowly, the shivering form of a slight young man lifted itself to a stance, his frightened face a plaintive plea to the officers to free him from his waking nightmare. He was arrested without a fuss. The young man's name was Harry Clarkson, and he admitted to being the man in the back seat of the Marquette. Police found a pistol in his overcoat pocket that hadn't been fired. The second man had slipped out of the cemetery and was spotted running down Roxeline Street. The crowd surged to pursue the figure, but they were pushed back by police. In the chaos, the gunman once again slipped away under cover of night. Daylight lifted the veil of night from the landscape. There were fewer dark places for the fugitive to camouflage himself, but still neither hide nor hair could be found. The dragnet focused on the network of ravines and rivers crisscrossing the landscape, believing that the most wanted man in the city would keep to the shroud of forest, brush, and stream. Throughout the morning, however, several clues emerged that began to trace out the fugitive's desperate path of escape. A school in the village of Weston, just north of Riverside Cemetery, was found to have been broken into. Medical supplies had been ransacked, likely to patch the wound Halliburton's bullet had dealt him. Somewhere in the long stretch between the east end of Etobicoke Township and the west end of Toronto Township, the fugitive had picked up a new ride. In Streetsville, a stolen car was found abandoned with fresh blood on the seat. The fugitive's trail was pushing further westward, but could he outrun the reach of every police officer from Toronto to Oakville? At 11.10 a.m., Chief David Carr was sitting behind his desk in the cramped offices of the Oakville Police Department at Colburn and Navy Streets, in a row of buildings that included the town hall, the courthouse, and the newspaper. 
The police department consisted entirely of the chief and two constables, William Rosner, the dayman, and John Barnes, the nightman. Carr's duties as chief included dog catcher and truant officer. For the small size of the Oakville Police Department, it had gotten a copious amount of front-page ink in the Toronto newspapers earlier that year for its feeble, if not sympathetic, treatment of Ku Klux Klan members and the harassment of a local interracial couple. The well-publicized case involved Isabella Jones, who was white, and Ira Johnson, whom the Klansmen believed to be black. Whether it was true, or simply a way to dodge the very attention the KKK were giving him, Johnson claimed Cherokee descent. Neither this, nor Johnson's valorous military service that saw him twice wounded in combat during World War I, nor the Johnson family's deep roots in southern Ontario, mattered to these bigots. All that mattered was the color of his skin was darker than theirs. The couple were to be married on February 28, 1930, but the racial purity police caught wind of the wedding from a tip-off by the bride's mother. A group of 75 white-hooded figures showed up at Johnson's home to forcibly break up the couple's planned nuptials. Four of the clansmen forced their way into the house and stole the bride away, pausing only to plant a cross on the lawn and set it ablaze. They then drove her to Hamilton and released her into the custody of her mother. For this act of kidnapping, forcible confinement, and trespassing, the Oakville police gave the four clansmen a slap on the wrist. They were each arrested for the indictable offense of wearing a mask after dark. Three were acquitted of the charge, and only one, Dr. W.A. Phillips, a Hamilton chiropractor, was convicted. A photo of a smiling Chief Carr with his arm around Phillips' shoulder outside the courthouse did not do Carr any favors in the eyes of the public. Indeed, it sparked rumors that the Chief was secretly a card-carrying Klan member himself. Protests by black, Jewish, and Catholic groups, all frequent Klan targets, erupted in Toronto and were covered heavily in the Toronto papers. Despite persistent threats by the KKK, the loving couple was emboldened by the public show of support. Love overcame hate, and Jones and Johnson planned another trip to the altar in late March. They were wed in secret at the new Credit Six Nations Reserve near Hagersville, today the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. Still smarting from the bad press of cozying up with a Klansman, Carr opened the office door to see his friend, retired Toronto police detective Charles Harrison, standing there. Though it had been eleven years since Harrison had hung up his spurs and retired to Trafalgar Township, the ex-Dick was still respected in police circles as the man whose dogged detective work had cracked the case of the notorious Rutledge gang at the turn of the century. Call it the sixth sense of a lifelong bloodhound, but Harrison knew that Carr's office was the place to be at just that moment. The phone rang. Carr answered and got an earful from Oakville resident H. Walters. He'd heard a radio report about a fugitive wanted for murder in Toronto, and he just happened to see a suspicious man walking south along the ninth line past his home. Carr left his office and got into the driver's seat of the department's Model A. Harrison climbed in beside him on the passenger side. Together, they sped off to meet Walters. As the Model A traveled north on 9th Line, 
Carr saw Walter's car coming towards them. Walters waved them down and told them he had just passed the suspicious man 500 yards back down the road. Carr and Harrison got out of the Model A and peered into the distance. Faintly, they could make out the lone figure of a man approaching them on foot. As they watched him, the figure stopped. He then turned and sprinted into the adjacent farm field. Carr drew his service revolver and ran after the man. Harrison rushed back to the Model A, grabbed a shotgun from the back seat, and followed Carr into the field. Carr pursued the fleeing man until he disappeared behind a vacant, derelict red brick house at the edge of the field. Carr sidled up to the house and slowly crept his way along the wall. He peered around the corner, just in time to see the man disappear around the opposite corner. Carr kept following the man cautiously. They circled the house until the hunted man made a break for a nearby forest. Carr lifted his revolver and fired at the man's back. The shot missed its mark, but for a moment, the man stopped running. He turned around, and the two men stared at each other. Carr watched as the fleeing man's hand went to his pocket. Carr could sense the man's thoughts, weighing the odds of a quick-draw showdown against the odds of a dash to the trees. His hand moved away from his pocket, and he turned and ran. Carr squeezed off three more shots at the fleeing man, but he reached the bush unscathed and disappeared into the trees. Harrison arrived, and Carr stationed him at the red brick house in case the fugitive doubled back. Carr then ran to the nearby McCleary farm, where there was a telephone line. He summoned his two constables, Rosner and Barnes, Provincial Constable David Rogers, and Constable Joseph Allen of Cooksville for backup. His next call was to Toronto Police Headquarters. He informed them that he had just seen the man they were looking for in Trafalgar Township. The manhunt shifted from the Weston area to the farm fields bordering Trafalgar and Toronto Townships. As carfuls of police from Toronto sped their way westward, Chief Carr and his constables entered the woods where the fugitive had fled into and found them deserted. The fugitive had disappeared once more, and it would be another three hours before he'd be seen again. His scent was picked up, not by the army of police scouring the countryside, but by Miss Hattie Pickering of Oakville. She had just left Bradley's Corner Store on the Dundas Highway near Trafalgar Road, where the local chatter had been consumed by the fugitive in their midst. As she walked back along Dundas towards home, she saw a man crouching next to a fence in a field some twenty-five feet away. Pickering played it cool and didn't let on that she had seen the man. She reached home, dropped her bags, and ran for the phone. She called Bradley's and told him what she'd seen, and he put in a call to the police. Little by little, the manhunt was finally zeroing in on the fugitive, and the crossroads of Dundas and Trafalgar was where X marked the spot. Provincial Police Constable David Rogers and Oakville Police Constable John Barnes were cruising slowly along 7th Line towards the Dundas Highway in Barnes' police car. They'd heard the reported sighting of the fugitive near their location over the radio. Their eyes were scanning the fields and orchards on both sides of the road for a trace of the fugitive cop killer. 
Rogers had a personal stake in finding the man. A second stolen car that had brought the fugitive from Streetsville to Oakville had been abandoned just outside the Rogers family farm earlier that morning. The armed fugitive had been mere feet from his parents' doorstep. Afternoon was changing into evening. In just over an hour, the fugitive would once again have the cover of night to aid his escape. Present in the car was the heavy thought that they would have to find their quarry soon or not at all. Soon came sooner than they both could have expected. Roger slammed on the brakes as a blurry figure darted across the road in front of them and disappeared into an orchard on the Levine farm on the car's passenger side. They looked to their left to see a Toronto police constable cutting across the field towards them, about 200 feet away. He was in close pursuit of the fugitive, but they were closer. The steely Rogers and the plucky Barnes abandoned the car and followed after the fleeing fugitive into the orchard. Sprinting through the rows of barren trees, they closed in on him to within 20 feet. Rogers stopped, drew his service revolver and fired, missing his mark. Barnes drew his gun too, but Rogers entered his line of sight and he held his fire. The fleeing man drew his revolver from his pocket and tossed it away without breaking stride. The constables took to their feet again, running after their prey. From all sides, the two constables heard the distant shouts of the Toronto police officers who were converging on the Levine farm. Ahead, they could see the fugitive reach the fence at the western edge of the orchard. Beyond the fence, the looming figures of Toronto police officers blocked his path, and the figure turned to race north. The two constables tried to keep pace, but Barnes tripped and tumbled into a ditch. Roger stopped to pull him up. A volley of gunshots echoed through the orchard. They watched as the hare's pace of the fugitive slackened to a tortoise's hobble. He doubled over, clutching his stomach. He managed to stumble a few more feet worth of freedom before the hulking mass of Constable Harry Wharton from McQuillan's own Keel Street Station made the last pounce, tackling the wounded fugitive to the ground. He wouldn't have gotten very far in any case. The bullet, now lodged in his stomach, and the exhaustion of a 24-hour chase had all but done him in. For the first time, the coppers got a good look at the rabbit they'd run to ground. His name was John Brokenshire. He was a fine physical specimen, lean and muscular, 22 years old, like Hal Burton had guessed. But the relentless run from the law had stripped him of all human graces. He was shoeless, coatless, and hatless, dressed only in a filthy shirt and pants, made filthier by the expanding bloodstain coming from his stomach. He was handcuffed, loaded into a police car, and rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital in Toronto. The broken and battered Brokenshire was the last tragic actor in our melodrama to arrive at St. Joe's. The captured fugitive was wheeled into an operating room to remove the bullet from his stomach. Across the hall in a reception room, Harry Clarkson was being interviewed by police detectives. In the hallway, Toronto Chief of Police Draper was in a huddle of police brass from headquarters. P.C. Roy McQuillan was downstairs in the morgue. 
the paths john brokenshire and harry clarkson had traveled to arrive at the shootout on scarlet road were those of rudderless youth with no prospects and no hope at the dawn of the great depression clarkson along with his mother and siblings had arrived in canada from england eight months before and settled in a home on delaware avenue in windsor next door to the brokenshire house Clarkson's father had served in the 14th Battalion, York and Lancashire Regiment, during the Great War. He'd been killed, along with 300,000 of his fellow Tommies, at the Battle of the Somme. Young Harry was awarded his father's posthumous military medal for bravery. The medal was a tribute to his father's heroism, but it was also a reminder of the large, empty shoes young Harry needed to fill. Now the man of the house, Harry went to work part-time at a local grocery store. He soon found himself laid off, however, when the owner brought in his wife to do the job instead, a necessary cost-cutting measure in those lean times. Twenty-two-year-old John Brokenshire had already served a stretch at Portsmouth Penitentiary near Kingston for a series of 32 break-and-enter robberies in North York. He was sentenced to four years, serving three before being granted parole in March of 1930. Back on the outside, Brokenshire tried to go straight, but couldn't find steady work. He moved back to his family's home in Windsor and channeled his pent-up frustrations into exercise, spending countless hours swimming laps at the YMCA pool. Brokenshire didn't smoke, didn't drink, or engage in any of the vices that might weaken body and mind. When he wasn't working out, Brokenshire lounged on the veranda of his parents' Delaware Avenue home. He soon struck up a friendship with Harry Clarkson, the boy next door who was newly arrived from England. Clarkson, too, had a lot of time on his hands. In the end, Brokenshire returned to a life of thievery, this time with Clarkson tagging along. On the Tuesday evening before the shooting of Constable McQuillan, the two young men left their homes, hopped a freight train, and rode the rails to Chatham. There, they stole a car, and that got them as far as London before it ran out of gas. They nicked another ride, the notorious Marquette, and that brought them to Toronto. They stowed the heap in North Toronto, ducked into a cinema, and caught nine reels of common clay, a tearjerker starring Constance Bennett and Lou Ayres. They emerged from the theater under cover of night to do some light B&E work at residential houses around the city, Brokenshire's old M.O. In between robberies, they returned to the darkness of the cinema, taking in a showing of The Life of the Party, a splashy musical about singing and dancing gold diggers. On the evening of December 11th, Clarkson and Brokenshire went back to fetch the Marquette. That's when they were spotted heading westward on Sinclair Avenue, and the report of the stolen car had landed on the desk of Sergeant Rumbold at Keel Station. As Brokenshire was being wheeled into the operating room at St. Joseph's Hospital, Harry Clarkson was brought to the door to identify his partner in crime. Flanked on all sides by police detectives, the two men greeted each other with a handshake. "'How are you, Jack?' Clarkson asked, his hand gripping Brokenshire's tightly. "'Not so good.' Brokenshire replied with a weak laugh. Sort of have gotten you into this, Harry. It's all right, Clarkson said. It was my idea anyway, said Brokenshire, 
I was responsible. He looked at the detectives. I did it. I stole the guns and gave Harry one of them. He didn't shoot. Clarkson's grip slackened. His eyes rolled back in his head, and he fainted to the ground. The detectives carried the limp body of the young man away, and orderlies pushed Brokenshire into the operating room. When doctors informed police officers that Brokenshire would need a blood transfusion, one of his guards, Constable Cecil Franklin, offered up his arm. Many of P.C. Franklin's badge-wearing brethren were less charitable. I hope the dog dies, was an all... <clears throat> I hope the dog dies, was an utterance heard round the ward. In the operating room, a contingent of five doctors convened to save Brokenshire's life. The bullet he had received in the Levine orchard had entered his left side, ruptured his spleen, grazed his liver, and lodged itself next to his right hip. Brokenshire remained defiant right onto the operating table. You're saving my life to hang me, he told one of the doctors ruefully. The surgeons pressed on with their work, and after an operation lasting two and a half hours, they indeed saved John Brokenshire's life that night. In the living room of 27 McGregor Avenue lay the body of Roy McQuillan. Despite the biting cold, hundreds of Toronto citizens lined up in single file to march through the small house, past McQuillan's casket. Across the street, the Toronto Police Silver Band huddled together on the sidewalk and played Nearer My God to Thee. After a short funeral service, the casket was carried in a long procession to Roy McQuillan's final resting place in Park Lawn Cemetery. Rock steady throughout the emotional trials of the past four days, Alice McQuillan finally collapsed from the weight of her grief as she made her way out of the cemetery. That same day, at noon, a black sedan left Delaware Avenue in Windsor and rumbled down the King's Highway, headed for Toronto. Its passengers were John Brokenshire's parents, along with Harry Clarkson's mother, Phoebe, and 18-year-old sister, Minnie. Seven hours later, the car arrived at St. Joseph's Hospital in Toronto. The Brokenshires were admitted to their son's hospital room. He was weak but awake. The hard-boiled egg, however, did not shed his shell, and he rebuffed them. After a visit of only two minutes, the Brokenshires left their son with his mother in tears. The next day, Harry Clarkson's mother and sister were given special permission from Governor George Headley Basher of the Toronto Jail to visit Harry. If the Brokenshire family reunion was marred by the surliness of their son, the Clarksons were equally unnerved by their audience with Harry. They beheld a cocky young man, smug in the surety that his legal troubles would quickly disappear, since Brokenshire had taken all the blame for the murder of Constable McQuillan on himself. The Clarksons exited Toronto Jail with a heartbreaking realization that Harry thought it was all a big joke. Later that day, the Brokenshires and the Clarksons once again piled into the little black car and began the seven-hour drive back down the King's Highway to Windsor. There was nothing left for them in Toronto. The gravity of Harry Clarkson's situation would be made clear to him, however, when he was charged with the murder of Roy McQuillan alongside John Brokenshire. As he would learn, in British and Canadian law, even if just one person in a group decides to commit a crime, all are held responsible. Clarkson had helped steal the Marquette, 
he'd helped commit robberies in Toronto, and when it came to the murder of Roy McQuillan, it made no difference that Brokenshire had been the one to pull the trigger. The charge will not be withdrawn, Assistant Crown Attorney Fred Malone told the papers. It cannot be, and there cannot be any reducing of the charge. On February 26, 1931, after two months' convalescence, Brokenshire left St. Joseph's Hospital. He was moved to Toronto Jail, where he was formally charged for the murder of P.C. Roy McQuillan. It would be his home while he waited for his trial. Indeed, it would be the last home he would ever know. The trial of John Brokenshire and Harry Clarkson was set to open as the marquee event at the Spring Criminal Assizes in 1931. As the trial date approached, his defense began to set the table for Brokenshire's innocence by reason of insanity. A stay was requested so that Brokenshire could be examined by defense psychoanalysts. When the trial began, his plea was not guilty. That John Brokenshire had shot P.C. Roy McQuillan to death was never in question. His statement to police detectives at St. Joseph's Hospital had been ruled admissible evidence by Justice William Henry Wright. His guilt or innocence at the trial would hinge on the question of whether or not he was of sound mind when he shot P.C. Roy McQuillan. Brokenshire's parents were called to the stand to describe their son's abnormal behavior, his obsession with physical fitness, his habit of inviting complete strangers over to their house, the time he lounged around the house nude in the summer heat, his habit of smiling to himself when nothing was amusing, that time he lost his overcoat and didn't seem to care, and, most distressingly, several instances where he claimed to hear voices in his head. Both the defense and the crown presented their own dueling degree-donning alienists to insist that Brokenshire was either suffering from dementia praecox of the hebrophrenic type or perfectly sane when he pulled the trigger. Dementia praecox was a now-debunked bit of psychiatric pseudoscience popular in the early 20th century for diagnosing the mentally ill, particularly in the young and the male. It was thought to come on at the age of 15 and result in the slow and unstoppable deterioration of the patient's mental health like a mental cancer until they snapped in a fit of irrational violence. John Brokenshire may very well have suffered from some form of mental illness, but it wasn't dementia praecox. Nevertheless, the defense presented three prominent psychiatrists, Dr. Vincent McDonough, physician-in-chief at St. Joseph's Hospital, Dr. G.A. McClarty, head of psychiatry at Toronto General Hospital, and Dr. Rory Richardson, head of psychiatry at Toronto Western Hospital, to testify that every idiosyncratic action and gesture made by Brokenshire since puberty was a symptom of dementia praecox. The prosecution countered that Brokenshire's crime spree leading up to the shooting and his 21-hour flight from justice was proof of a sound mind that knew right from wrong. The Crown brought in their own triple set of distinguished psychiatrists as witnesses. Like the defense doctors, the new experts weren't of the opinion that dementia praecox was a bunch of psychiatric quackery. They also saw it as a real condition. They just didn't see it in John Brokenshire. When pressed, however, all three admitted that the symptoms described by Brokenshire's parents might be evidence of insanity. When it came to the head-to-head -head match of head shrinkers, you could call to draw. It was up to the jury to decide which side they believed more. 
They required five hours of deliberation before they returned to the courtroom with a unanimous decision. Justice Wright asked the jury foreman to stand and deliver the jury's verdict. John Brokenshire, guilty, he read haltingly, his eyes never wavering from the paper in his hand. Harry Clarkson, not guilty. Though Clarkson had just narrowly missed the gallows, any relief he might have felt was swallowed up by sadness for the fate of his friend. From up on the dais, Justice Wright laid down a sentence of death on Brokenshire and set the date of execution for August 14, 1931. Clarkson could only bite his lip and fight away tears. What's more, the criminal justice system wasn't done with him yet. Clarkson had been acquitted of Roe McQuillan's murder, but his freedom was fleeting. He was immediately arrested outside the courthouse on the charge of carrying a concealed firearm, a charge the police had kept under their hats in case of acquittal. Harry Clarkson was eventually found guilty and handed a five-year sentence. After he left the courtroom, Brokenshire was brought back to Toronto jail and moved into a new cell in the corridor just outside the jail's death chamber. A 24-hour death watch was set. In his cell, he met with Reverend T.W. Barnett, his spiritual advisor. I'm glad it's over, Brokenshire told the Padre. I'm a physical wreck anyway. Brokenshire was given a reprieve, and his execution was pushed back to September 23rd, to allow for the processing of his appeal. On August 11th, in a crowded courtroom at Osgood Hall, the Supreme Court of Ontario dismissed Brokenshire's appeal. The five appellate judges had been unanimous in their decision, which prevented the case from being taken to the Supreme Court of Canada. It was, effectively, the ultimate death sentence for John Brokenshire. He would hang on September 23rd. A few minutes before 8 o'clock on the morning of September 23, 1931, John Brokenshire was led out of his death row cell in the Toronto jail and down the short corridor to a former lavatory that had been refurbished into the execution chamber. A noose hung from a wooden beam suspended over a trap door in the floor. Below that was 15 feet of nothing. At 8 o'clock, the trap door was opened, and John Brokenshire with the noose tied tightly around his neck, fell into that nothingness. And so we close the file on another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's Darker Side. Like what you heard? Click follow to subscribe. This podcast is written by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer. Research by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Matthew Wilkinson. An adaptation of this story by James Walker first appeared in the Heritage News. Video content produced by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Ryan Parks. Mississauga Confidential is a Heritage Mississauga production. Heritage Mississauga is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to researching, recording, and celebrating the history of the city of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Your support helps create programming just like this. For more information about Heritage Mississauga and to become a member, please visit heritagemississauga.com and follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, dear listeners, this is Mississauga Confidential, signing off.